So, we're in a series right now called A People of the Kingdom of Heaven. And I'm really excited that we're talking about this because this is such an important question for us to be wrestling with. Because the kingdoms of this world, or the democracies therein, we're facing some pretty difficult divisions, aren't we? We are. Sometimes it feels like American society might just implode, doesn't it? The kingdoms and the governments of this world, they've always experienced division. We've come to expect this. But the kingdom is meant to be different. The kingdom of heaven is meant to be different. So today, we're going to be talking about something that can be incredibly divisive, and that is truth. The idea that we are a people of the kingdom of heaven also means that we are to be a people of truth. There is a divisive culture war raging all around us, and at the center of this war is an outcry for truth, right? We live in an age of information where more access for more people, more than ever, is available in human history, but we also live also in an age of misinformation, right? Each side is accusing the other of fake news and deception. There are debates about censorship and freedom of speech, and even though most people agree that there is something called truth, they can't agree on what it is that is true. But the idea that we are to be a people of the kingdom of heaven also means that we are a people of truth. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And if you're anything like me, you'd like to think that you possess something as close as possible to absolute truth and that everyone else just needs to catch up. Anyone else? Just me? Liars. (laughs) It's true. We wouldn't think it was true unless we thought it was true, right? Like you have your own biases and, and things that you believe because you think that they're true. So the questions are, would Jesus have us choose, choose sides in our culture wars that are happening around us? Or is the invitation to be a people of his kingdom, does that mean something else for us? What does it mean to be a people of truth? So there are two questions that we're gonna reflect on during our time together. The first one is, how do Jesus followers discover truth? And the second is, how do Jesus followers respond to truth? How do Jesus followers discover truth and how do Jesus followers respond to truth? To frame up these questions, we're going to be in the gospel according to John chapter 20, or sorry, chapter 18, verse 28. It's in the New Testament. It's the fourth book in that Bible. To set the scene, Jesus has just been betrayed by Judas, right? Judas turned him over to the religious officials to be arrested, and he's been brought before Pontius Pilate, who is uh, Caesar's representative. He's the governor in Jerusalem, See, the religious leaders, they want Jesus dead, and they are hoping that the Romans will do it for them, and we'll get into why a bit later. This betrayal, this trial is taking place um, after the triumphal entry, right? We celebrate the triumphal entry every year on Palm Sunday before Easter, uh, the Sunday leading up to Easter. Sorry, I'm going to try to fix my mic here so it's not... All right, we're in business. Are we in business? Cool. (laughs) So the Palm Sunday, celebrating the triumphal entry. The week that we celebrated Palm Sunday this last year, uh, my five-year-old son, William, we went home, and uh, later that afternoon, we couldn't find one of his toys. And once he gets his mind set on finding a certain toy or figurine or whatever, he can't really get his mind off of it. So we're a little frustrated. We're running around the house. We're turning up all the pillows, and we can't find this toy. And we have dinner, and then later on that night, he discovers it hiding in a very unlikely place. And he just goes, Hosanna, Hosanna. 
<laughs> which of course means save us now. That's what they shouted during the triumphal entry, right? When Jesus was riding on the donkey and they put the palm branches at his feet. Uh, apparently finding that lost, lost toy was an occasion for worship in his mind. It just made me laugh. So now whenever we find something lost in our house, we go, Hosanna, Hosanna. The Passover uh, uh, is what they're remembering during this, during this time. Um, and this is, of course, the time where they would look back on the, um, uh, the, the story of Moses delivering the Jews out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, out of oppression and into uh, human flourishing. And this would make the Romans really nervous that the Jews would celebrate this because every year the Jews took time to remember their God, Yahweh, and how he empowered the underdogs to escape the domination of a world superpower, right? That's a little problematic for the Roman Empire. We can't have Jews getting all confident and over, overcoming the odds of their oppressors. The Romans wanted order. They wanted civility. The gospel of the empire was Caesar is Lord, right? So what they would do is every year in Jerusalem, um, the week leading up to the Passover, they would have Pontius Pilate, uh, the local governor, Caesar's representative. He would make a show of force, right? It was his job to keep the peace in the town uh, and to squash any uprising. So he would come down from his city in North Caesarea on horseback and he would march right through the main gate down the middle of the city with chariots and with soldiers as a show of force. Look, you can have your little festival, but remember, we carry the big stick, right? Well, this particular year that we're talking about, the week of Passover, Jesus had a little parade of his own, right? But Jesus didn't come through the main gate on a horse with an army. He came on a donkey, and he made his way to the east gate, which is kind of like the back door of the city. And people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Thousands of people shouting, save us now. So this is often depicted in kind of a celebratory, you know, lighthearted moment, but they're calling Jesus the king of the Jews. And they're assembling in large numbers, and they're declaring, save us now. You can imagine that this makes Pilate nervous. So the Pharisees who are really annoyed that, that, that people are calling Jesus the Messiah, that he's going to be around forgiving sins and undermining their authority, they see this as their opportunity. If they can get Pilate to see Jesus as an official uh, political threat, then maybe they can get them to crucify Jesus. This way Pilate knows that the Jewish leaders want nothing to do with this, this rebel and they don't want to associate with him, right? All right, so let's get into the text. This is John chapter 18, verse 28 through 40. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place, palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. <laughs> it's interesting. By all means, plot to kill the Messiah, but don't you dare violate the ritual laws. This is why Jesus is always dismantling hypocritical religion in favor of the kingdom, right? 29. So Pilate came out to ask them, and or came out to them and asked, "What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, he would not. He would. We would not have handed him over to you. By that they mean we don't really have anything against Roman law that he's done. We got nothing. And Pilate said, "Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone." They objected. So the Pharisees are going out of their way here to show that they don't follow Jesus, right? Look, we aren't with him. We're subservient to Rome. They want his execution to be a political statement. They want this to be a Roman execution so that the Romans know that they aren't organizing a rebellion, right? Verse 32, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? 
And Pilate's probably thinking if he can get Jesus to admit that he's a political rebel, then maybe he has grounds to execute him as an enemy of the state. Verse 34, is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? (laughs) Jesus is always answering questions with other questions. 35, am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. So Jesus is not a pawn in this scheme, right? He knows exactly what he's doing. The Romans are trying to pin him down as a rebel leader and a self-proclaimed king. The Pharisees want to label him as a blasphemous teacher, but he came to reveal a much bigger reality, a story that transcends either of these narratives, right? His kingdom is cosmic. He's saying that the citizens of the kingdom are not first Jewish or Roman or anything else. They are a people of truth. Verse 38, what is truth? Retorted Pilate. Well, Pilate is an accomplished leader. He's a governor, he's a politician, he's a peacekeeper. He knows that truth is whatever Caesar needs it to be. However, it can serve his agenda. Look, the reality is we are inclined not just to miss the truth, but to look truth dead in the face and choose not to accept it. We do this. And if Jesus is who he says he is, the implications are that it changes everything. The Pharisees and the Romans, they have a lot to lose if Jesus truly is the Messiah. But rather than accept the truth and the implications, we have a way of denying it in order that we might remain comfortable, right? Because the truth brings us to change, and we don't like change. Jesus is saying that people of his kingdom are people who are on the side of truth, not on the side of of human agendas. Continuing on, with this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, and said, if I find no bias for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at a time, at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. So this is a devious move by Pilate, right? There's a horde of people at his doorstep. They're demanding the death of of Jesus and he has no grounds to punish him. So he rolls out this gesture of, of good faith. He's just managing the crowd. He he doesn't care about truth. He isn't asking if Jesus actually deserves to be punished or not. In other tellings of the story, we actually see that Pilate washes his hands to remove himself from the equation. He's just trying to keep the peace. He's trying to save face. He's trying to preserve order. Embracing the truth of who Jesus is is not high on his list of priorities. So in this story, we see an important dynamic at play. Pilate does what so many people in our culture do so well. He manipulates the narrative, right? Like the facts and the evidence are far less convincing than the story told around the facts, yeah? Statistics and, and, and uh, numbers can be spun and dressed up to serve our own agendas. And this is the meaning behind Pilate's question, what is, what is truth? Truth is whatever Caesar needs it to be. Jesus is defining his people, though, as a people of truth. Jesus tells Pilate that he has come into the world to testify to the truth. So we come back to the question, how do Jesus' followers discover truth? Well, truth is revealed to us through Jesus. 
Truth must be revealed to us. And this does not mean that we have no part to play in it, right? But largely truth is a gift. And we don't like that. (laughs) That's difficult for some of us to accept because we like the idea that truth is something that I can conquer, something that I can can possess and I can command and, and through vigorous study and the gathering of facts, I can know truth. Now, I love vigorous study, or at least I like the results of it, especially if someone else does it for me. And I love a good trivia night. I will wipe the floor with you at Star Trek Seen It. I will. But followers of Jesus have a unique relationship with truth. And that relationship exists because truth is not so much an idea that we can understand, but a person we can know. Jesus. See, pretty early on, people had this perception of Jesus as someone who was more than just an ordinary teacher, right? When he was giving his Sermon on the Mount, it's recorded that people were amazed and astonished at what he had said because he spoke as someone who had authority. There was this sense that Jesus wasn't simply regurgitating or passing on ideas, but that he himself was a giver of wisdom, that he was the revealer of truth. And this is emphasized, particularly in the Gospel of John. We're going through the Gospel of John right now in our young adults group. Shameless plug, join us Wednesdays at 6.30. Um, But in John, truth is talked about a lot. In John chapter one, verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So Jesus came as the embodied presence of God, full of truth because he came from God and he was God and therefore he was the holder and the generator of truth. John 14, verses, verse six through seven says, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So truth is not a concept to be learned. Truth is Jesus, a person with whom we get to have relationship. To know Jesus is to know truth. In John chapter eight, verse 32, it says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus is talking about himself. I will set you free if you know me. He's not just saying that possessing knowledge will set you free. The revelation of truth in Jesus will set you free. The truth that we are loved and forgiven and redeemed and made new, that's freedom. It's interesting that Jesus is often asked about truth, about particular things, right? Matters, issues, And he will respond with a question or idea that gets beyond or beneath the initial question. He doesn't directly answer the question. He tries to get to something beneath it. He's really frustrating that way, right? And we don't need to be afraid of that. We don't need to be afraid of what we'll find at the end of our questions and the pursuit of truth. We can trust him. It kind of sets us free from the burden of having to determine and define truth for ourselves because that can be really exhausting. It's It's like when you're traveling to a place you've never been before. Right, at least for me, I always feel more confident when I have somebody that I know who's gonna be at the place that I'm, that I'm going to, right? Like, like when I go to Hawaii, my wife is from Hawaii. She grew up there. So when I go to Hawaii, I don't need to like look up Yelp reviews and look at maps and stuff. She knows all the freeways, all three of them. She knows them super well, right? She's an expert on Hawaii. I don't need to do all the research because I know the authority on Hawaii. I mean, she's not the authority on Hawaii, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Jesus is the truth. So when my brain is so full of information, when my questions yield unsatisfying answers, I can have peace knowing that I'm in relationship with the person who is truth. 
And the Holy Spirit is referred to in the Gospel of John as the Spirit of truth. Right? So I won't always know everything everywhere all at once, but I have the love of Jesus in my life and I have the Spirit within me, the truth active in me. So even when I can't determine the answers that I want to frustrating questions, God will always be faithful to lead me to a deeper truth if I let him take me there, right? And again, I'm not suggesting that we turn off our brains when it comes to discerning truth either. It's not what I'm saying. The reality is that Jesus left a lot of really specific questions unanswered though. It's amazing how little Jesus talks about the things I have questions about, right? Is it okay for my kid to believe in Santa Claus? Would he drive a Tesla, right? Would Jesus watch boxing? Was Jesus a good carpenter? What if he wasn't? (laughs) It's weird, right? And then there are other more serious questions that we have, like what would Jesus say about vaccines? What should Christians do about war? What does Jesus have to say about protests? I'll, I'll let you fill in the blank with your burning, most controversial questions. But the reality is, different people who love Jesus sometimes arrive at very different conclusions to the same questions. So how do we approach these conversations? Church, we have to learn to get better at disagreeing. We have to learn how to put down our stones and move towards one another in love, right? Yeah, it's worth a hand clap. We've got to learn the skills of empathy and active listening and dialogue. We've got to learn how to do that. Because it's easy to sit on my couch, right, and like watching the news or like scrolling through social media, casting my judgments and verdicts of truth upon everyone else, right? But unity is not actually about being right. I had a mentor once who told me, Lane, you can either be right or you can have a relationship. He was talking about my marriage, by the way. You can either be right or you can have a relationship. Like, what's the higher priority for us? Is it about having a monopoly on the right opinion or is it about unity? Is it about relationship? Is it about intimacy? Let's be honest. Sometimes we jump to really harsh opinions and blanket statements without really doing the work, right? We simply regurgitate something we saw online taken out of context and we feel good about ourselves, yeah? We leave our self-righteous comment and we say, there, that'll show them. That article I linked will really change their mind, right? Just me? I think we need to get better at approaching the world with nuance and perspective. I, I used to look at the world as like a piece of paper with a line down the middle, and in one column was right and the other column was, was wrong. <laughs> but as I've engaged more and more with controversial topics from people whom I have lots of respect and equal love for who draw very different conclusions, I've, I've had to realize that life is more like a dodecahedron. Do you know what a dodecahedron is? It's this thing. (laughs) I didn't know what it was when I saw it in the back, so I asked, and someone said it's a dodecahedron, and I just had to take their word for it. This is a dodecahedron. It's complicated. It's nuanced. There's perspectives that I can't see from my side, right? Again, I'm not saying truth is unknowable. I'm saying truth is complex. It's nuanced. So after I've done all the work, I have to remind myself that truth is not an idea to be understood. It's a, it's a person that I know. Truth is Jesus. And, as Je- as, and Jesus is someone who is to be followed that we're supposed to emulate, right? If we're gonna be better peacemakers, if we, we, we would probably be better at that if we held our opinions more graciously while following Jesus passionately. I think we'd be better at it. But even after we've done all the hard work and we feel that we've arrived at truth, 
then what? <laughs> what do we do with the truth that we feel that God has revealed to us, right? There are so many instances in the New Testament where people are trying to trap Jesus in a debate. You've noticed this? They try to get Jesus to pick a side or to choose a stance, but then Jesus always points people to a deeper truth. It's so frustrating. And what's interesting is that there is often an agenda being pushed behind the questions. It's hidden behind what is a pursuit of truth, but it's really not. Think about the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, right? After Jesus sort of reads her mail and kind of draws out a history of pain and trauma in her life, she starts asking a theological question, right? We worship what we, we worship on this mountain, you worship on this mountain, what, what's theologically correct? And what's funny is that Jesus actually gives an answer, actually the Jews are theologically right about this, but a time is coming where a deeper truth will be revealed, right? So their truth was, we don't know where to find the presence of God, and Jesus' truth was, the presence of God has come to you. Jesus is always going deeper. There's a story of the, of the woman caught in the act of adultery, right? Where the man is mysteriously present or uh, not present. <laughs> and they asked, should we stone her or should we let her go? And Jesus is like, well, as long as we're stoning people, based on the available evidence, who else should join her? Their truth was, she's guilty. And Jesus' truth was, well, so are you. But I do not condemn you. So, how do we discover truth? Jesus reveals truth to us. Second question, how do Jesus' followers respond to truth? After we've pursued it, after we've done all we can to seek wisdom and, and we, come, we arrive at a conviction, right? A strong conviction that we're right and that a person or a group of people is being deceived and leading others into deception. We feel that we know the truth about something and that there's something else, someone else who's entertaining a lie, misinformation, sowing misinformation. We've come to the conclusion that someone is wrong or even further has sided with evil. What do we do? Let's talk about Judas. There's a story in John chapter 13 that leads to the events we read about with Jesus and, and Pilate. It's always grabbed me. It's a story where Jesus humbles himself to wash the feet of the disciples, something that only servants did, never rabbi. But right before he does this, the author makes a point to tell us that, that he knew Judas was going to betray him. This means Jesus looked Judas in the eyes, knowing full well that this man who had walked with him for three years, who had become a trusted friend, was going to turn Jesus over to suffer an unjust trial and a tortuous death. Knowing this, he washed Judas's feet. He humbly performed an unappealing act of intimate affection and service. He washed his disgusting, smelly, traitorous feet. And I mean, this is as evil as it gets, right? Like Jesus, Judas had no excuse. He wasn't misinformed. He didn't have half the story. He wasn't some outsider that didn't know Jesus personally. This was Judas, a man who had received years of affection and guidance from Jesus. Judas went out of his way, not just in a moment of weakness, but he plotted and schemed. He took bribes. He led people to a sacred place of prayer and then he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And Jesus, knowing that this would happen, he lowered himself down on the ground and he washed his feet. And then Jesus breaks bread, dips it in wine, saying, 
this is my body broken for you and my blood shed for you. And he hands it to Judas. Jesus laid down his life in the most grotesque and humiliating way and he did it for a man without excuse. If anyone was going to be loyal, if anyone understood how much Jesus loved, it was Judas. And he stabbed Jesus in the back. But Jesus washed his feet and then offered him his sacrifice. The picture we just showed, it was a piece created by an artist named Jessica Gold. She has an art collection called Salt and Gold and she did a whole series of Jesus washing um, the feet of people in our modern world. And in a minute, we're gonna show some of the images from this series. And just so you know, it can be kind of tough. Brad and I sat down together and we looked through these images together and we realized that some of these images were kind of triggering, difficult to look at. Some of these were people that we had a hard time accepting that Jesus would be merciful towards. And it forced us to sort of reflect on our own capacity for mercy. Jesus asks us to love our enemies, doesn't he? It's a hard one. And in our culture, our enemies are often people who have different perspectives on what is true. Perhaps stances of truth that are seemingly opposite to ours, but the scriptures teach us that truth isn't an idea, it's not a stance, it's a person that we're invited to know. And to know Jesus is not simply to know about him, but it's to accept his invitation to allow us to, for, to be formed by him, right? To allow the branches of our lives to be grafted into the vine that is Jesus, to embody the character of Christ. To be a people of the kingdom is to be a people who emulate the king. And to be a people of truth is to be a people who act like Jesus, who was truth, who is truth. So we're called to choose a deeper truth. We aren't called to choose sides in the culture wars of this world. We are called to be a people of the kingdom of heaven, citizens of a kingdom not of this world. So as these images cycle through, reflect. Notice what it does to your heart. Who is it difficult for you to see in that chair? The Pharisees, they came to Jesus with truth, right? But Jesus is the higher truth, always. With the woman caught in adultery, the Pharisees' factual truth was, this woman is a sinner. And Jesus' higher truth was, but her sins are forgiven. Jesus is like, you said I'm the king of the Jews, but I'm the king of truth. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said, do not murder, but the higher truth is that murder's in your heart if you hate someone, whether or not you commit an act of violence. We are so ready to throw people at Jesus' feet to say, see, they're wrong. But let me ask you, what do you think Jesus might say to you when you do that? Or moreover, what might he say to the person you throw to the ground before him? What would he say to them? There's a quote from a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. He said, there are two ways to be deceived. One is to believe what is not true. The other is to refuse to accept what is true. Perhaps the people we see in these chairs, from your perspective, have believed what isn't true. But maybe the greater sin would be to refuse to accept Jesus' truth. Our truth being, they're wrong. 
they're being deceived. And Jesus' truth being, maybe, but I died for them. Sometimes we can get so caught up in winning the war for truth that we forget who truth is fighting for. The difficult truth is whether someone is right or wrong, I guarantee you, on the night Jesus was betrayed, he would have washed their feet. And he would have washed yours. Who do you need to put in that chair? Who is it that you're angry with? Who is it when you hear about them on the news, when you read their comments on social media, when you sit through their awkward comments at dinner, when you get irritated with them at work? Who is it that deep down in your bones you know is being deceived and leading others to deception? I guarantee you on the night Jesus was betrayed, he would have washed their feet. Church, do we wanna be a people of truth? Look to Jesus. Because when truth is embodied, it looks like love. Are we soldiers sent in to fight? Or are we medics sent in to heal? Would Jesus have us choose sides or would he have us roll up our sleeves and wash some feet? Jesus is the truth and Jesus is love. Therefore, the most meaningful act of truth is to reflect his love. And with that, we come to communion. A good time to do this. Go ahead and open your wafer first. Don't open the juice first. That would be bad for you. I want us to just take a moment. I've said some things (laughs) tonight. (laughs) And if you're anything like me, they were just as hard for you to hear as they were for me to write the first time. I want you to just take a moment in silence to reflect on what Jesus did. He allowed his body to be broken and his blood to be shed in a desire that no one would perish, that people would come to know his love, his grace, and his mercy, just like you did. So just take a moment and then I'll pray and we'll take these together. Jesus, revealer of truth. Your truth can be very difficult sometimes. We ask that through your Holy Spirit, we would be empowered to embody truth to those around us. The truth that you gave yourself that we might be with you. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Will you stand as I give the benediction?
you want to hold your hands in a posture of receiving. May you be people of the kingdom of heaven, people who embody truth in love to those around us. Amen. Have a good week, everyone.